Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode is sponsored by Raw Power, an app that lets you process raw files on your Mac with full control over Apple's raw engine. We'll tell you more about Raw Power later in the show. Thanks for joining us for this week's Photoactive. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that we have moved the frequency of the podcast to fortnightly. So if you felt that you missed an episode last week and you were curious, because of our professional commitments, we'll be doing this every two weeks for a while. This is the time of year for me when I don't really take a lot of pictures. It's the weather, it's the shorter days. Now we're in February and the days are getting longer. But when it's cold and windy and rainy, and it doesn't rain that much in England, don't believe what people (laughs) say, but I think it's the the shorter days that make it harder for me to to have the desire to go outside and take pictures. And one thing I find useful in this period is to set some constraints for how I'm going to take pictures. So we wanted to do an episode about constraints because when you create something, you have total freedom. And sometimes the total freedom means that you end up trying to do too many things or you have too many options and it's hard to choose which one you want to use. And sometimes when you discipline yourself with constraints, that limit can actually make you more creative because you're trying to find a solution to working within these constraints. One of the basic constraints that people often write about is to use one camera and one lens. Now, this is for people who have lots of cameras. I used to have two and I only have one. Most people listening probably only have one, not counting your smartphone. We'll get to that one later. As for the one lens, I think it's really important to not use a zoom lens. So when they say one camera, one lens, it's really one camera, one focal length. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If you have a zoom lens, you really have lots of different options. If I have any problems shooting, it's really because there's too much information. There's too much to see. And so when you propose this idea, immediately I had ideas of, okay, like what things can I cut out of my regular shooting? And uh, I, I don't know about you. I found this to be really instructive. Yeah, me too. Um, I've got a list of about a dozen possibilities. I've been doing this for a while now with my uh, 35 millimeter lens. So that's a 50 millimeter equivalent, which really is my favorite focal length. And one thing I found is I haven't been taking too many photos. I actually had to switch the lens a few times for some product photos for an article I was writing, but that doesn't (laughs) count. But the other day I was in the kitchen and there was this wonderful sunlight coming in. There were some tomatoes and some little candle holders on a worktop. And I said, wow. And I went and got my camera and I shot a picture of that and a picture of a plant. And it made me realize that part of the constraint of winter, winter itself is a constraint. Part of the constraint of winter is finding places to shoot that are interesting, that aren't cold, unless you like being out in the cold. We had Quinton Lake on a few months ago, who's doing this tour of the border of the United Kingdom. And he's up in Scotland right now, and it's kind of cold up there, and it snowed last week. And he likes it. He likes being outdoors. But it made me think when I shot these photos, I I took about a dozen photos, and, and two of them came out interesting. We'll link to them in the show notes. It made me realize that I could just walk around my house for a few hours And if I look really carefully and limit myself to that one camera, one lens, I could find lots of interesting things to shoot. What you said about light, I think, is really interesting. That shot that you mentioned, that popped out to me when I saw it on Instagram. And it it reminded me that regardless of of where you are, there's going to be light somewhere. And especially in the winter, you can get a lot of really good sort of low light early in the afternoon because the days are shorter. And so 
you really get the opportunity to play with light coming through windows and shadows and those sorts of things that can be everyday tableaus without undertaking that that big effort of, okay, I'm now going out to shoot photos. I'm going to go do a landscape. I'm going to trek 20 miles in the snow. Uh, that's great. You know, obviously, you know, if you have the opportunity to do that, but you can also get really nice little vignettes sitting in your kitchen with a cup of coffee. Yes. Coffee, coffee or, or tea. tea. Exactly. Yeah. Depending. It also brings to mind the fact that you don't necessarily have to like switch into camera mode. You don't have to be like, okay, now I am going to go shoot photos. That definitely has its place. But I find more and more, uh, especially, you know, as I've been a photographer longer, I have different eyes for seeing light and seeing photo opportunities. And so, you know, I'm sure this is slightly annoying to the people that live with me because every once in a while I'll, I will be like, hang on a second. <laughs> I have to go grab my camera because there's this thing happening and it's only going to happen for like four minutes, yep. uh, you know, yep. and some of those pictures are some of my favorite pictures. And that's exactly what happened to me. I was in the kitchen and the light was really spectacular. It was about two in the afternoon. So the kitchen faces south. The light is low. As you said, in winter, the light is low, at least in the northern hemisphere. Any of our listeners in the southern hemisphere, this is summer. And... The, the light just surprised me, and I immediately went to get the camera. And, and there is this click sometimes that happens when you see something and you realize that there is a composition there and that you can grab it. So the, w another constraint that I would mention is to use just one location. Maybe it's your kitchen. Maybe it's anywhere in your house. Maybe it's your garden. Maybe it's your garage. Maybe it's your refrigerator. Look in your refrigerator. Find interesting food. Put it out someplace where it gets sun and shadows and lights. And in my kitchen, there's Venetian blinds. And Venetian blinds are always mm -hmm, interesting. Definitely. And take pictures of food products. That happened to me recently. I accidentally overcooked a red pepper in the oven, and it was like all black and crinkly. And I was like, ah, oh, like you know, I've, 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 I've overdone it. I've ruined it. But then I looked closer, and I was like, oh, like, like it looked faceted. It looked, you know, almost, uh, you know, more geometric. The point here is. Some of the constraints we're going to be talking about are very deliberate choices of, you know, lens or, uh, you know, whether you're shooting in black and white. I think it's also a matter of not having a bunch of expectations that are going to overwhelm you because too many times you're like, okay, I'm going to go shoot a photo and you have infinite number of choices from your lens, your settings, your location, like those are the things that can sort of give you your mental vapor lock. If you already have a lot of those uh, aspects nailed down, then you don't have to think about them and you can just focus on, hey, how does this light look? I don't have to go and mess with lights. I don't have to figure out how I want this to look because I just need to take this picture. To be less judgmental. Exactly, exactly. And you can always like work out from there, but being able to start with a narrow focus, I think is really, really valuable. And that's something that, that I have trouble with because my brain instantly goes big and wide. I just went out one day with a lot of constraints in mind. It was very mentally focusing, which was, at least for me, almost freeing. That reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, which isn't really about creativity, but which can be applied to creativity. It's from a Zen teacher named Shunryu Suzuki, and he says, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. 
What this means is that when you're new at something, you see all these open possibilities. But when you're an expert, you're so limited by all the things you think you have to do that in a way, it's all of that expert baggage that forces you to not have that openness. You may be thinking about your focal length and your aperture and your lighting and your angles and all that. But someone who's new to photography may just point the camera and find a picture that's much better than the person who's, you know, worried about the the perfect white balance and the focus stacking or whatever it is. Yeah, the, there's definitely that issue of of knowing too much and going into it with with too much on your brain uh, that it just overloads you. So here are two constraints I would like to mention. Both of them come from a documentary about William Eggleston that I saw a few years ago. Uh, I'll look and see if it's on YouTube, and if so, we'll put a link in the show notes. It was a film of him talking about his photography, and uh, the filmmaker was following Eggleston around as he was shooting. And Eggleston does two things that are really interesting. He only takes one shot of a scene, ever. He may go around to the side of a house and the front of a house, but he never takes a picture, looks, well, he's using film. He never takes a picture, thinks about it, takes another one, takes a different angle, etc. He takes one shot and he moves on. Another thing that he does is he never, ever crops his photos. He composes in the frame, and that's the photo that he gets. Both of these are extremely powerful. The not cropping forces you to compose your photo much more carefully. Instead of just taking a picture, kind of scattershot, thinking, I'll crop it in post, which obviously degrades the quality and has all sorts of other effects. It forces you to think about how are you going to compose it? What, do you, what are you seeing in the viewfinder? Is that exactly what you want to show in the viewfinder? Maybe you have to zoom with your feet, move forwards or backwards to get what you want. And the idea of only taking one shot of a scene is take the time to look and find the shot you want. Or, and what Eggleston seemed to do a lot, is you look around, you see something, boom, you capture it and you move on. You don't think too much about it. You do this more instinctively. This reminds me of something that I heard about Picasso. You know, somebody said, wow, his stuff is like so out there and bizarre and strange. And the reason he was able to do that is because he had already mastered everything else about painting. Like, you know, of course he could sit down and paint something that was extremely realistic. And I believe he did, you know, earlier in his career. It was because he had all of those foundations set that he could then experiment and, and, and go off. And it sounds like that's kind of the same thing. Eggleston, I'm sure, was able to do that because he knew what he was looking for. He knew how to edit out the potential images that were there that he knew weren't what, what he was looking for. Or he knew how to find the one image in the cornucopia that's in front of him. Exactly. He knew how to zero in on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but with, with Picasso, it's it's pretty simple. You have to learn to follow all the rules before you can start breaking them. Sort of like photography, too. Yeah, well, but there aren't... See, these aren't rules, what we're talking about. These are the many options you have when you're shooting photos. And so here are two more um, constraints that I'll throw out. Shoot in JPEG only. And the reason what? for this is if you shoot in RAW and JPEG, you're going to be going back to the RAW. You're going to spend a lot of time post-processing. You're going to be planning... Well, I can underexpose because I can change the exposure and post and do all that stuff. No, make your picture what you want. Shoot in JPEG, shoot in camera. We'll link to our episode we did with Gordon Lang, who has written a book about shooting in camera, about composing, shooting, balancing everything in camera and not worrying about all of this post-production that you have to do. Shoot in JPEG and don't post-process. 
maybe, maybe you'll change the light a little bit, the exposure a little bit, but don't go into it thinking that you can fix all these things. I think it was Gordon Lang in that episode who said that when he does photo workshops, he sees a lot of people and their photos, their landscapes aren't straight. You know, the horizon's not level. And he said, when you think about it, people would say, I can fix that in post. But when you do that, you're, you're turning the image. You are altering every single pixel in the photo and you're degrading the quality of your image, assuming you want to work with a pixel-perfect RAW file and make a pixel-perfect result. But every time you do that, you're altering all the pixels in the photo. So no post-processing, JPEG only. Okay, I, I think we need to head for a break because you're making me feel really uncomfortable now <laughs> by suggesting that I don't post-process because I, I, am, I am so ingrained to post-process. Ah, okay. Okay, we'll take a break. We'll come <laughs> back with a few more constraints. Excellent. Raw Power 2 lets you process photos on your Mac, iPhone, or iPad with full control over Apple's RAW engine. Did you know Apple applies its own boost adjustment to RAW files? Raw Power gives you control over that setting, plus many other RAW-specific edits like exceptional highlight recovery, noise reduction, capture sharpening, gamut mapping, and more. Raw Power 2 on the Mac runs as a standalone app or as an extension in Apple Photos. Your non-destructive edits will sync over iCloud Photos. That means you can continue editing in Raw Power 2 for iOS, a full photo library app that offers the same features as the Mac and works with your existing iOS Photos library. If you shoot with more than one camera, one of my favorite features is the ability to auto-detect the source and apply automatic corrections. Maybe your Canon RAW files exhibit a greenish tint. Well, RAW Power on the Mac can apply the fix for you automatically, saving you time and letting you focus on making the rest of your image better. Find out more about RAW Power at rawpower.app. That's raw power, one word, dot app. I have succeeded in making Jeff very uncomfortable about post-processing because he's really into post-processing <laughs> and I'm not, I'm just, and I've said this many times, I do minimal editing. Probably the most I ever do in post-processing is when I convert a photo from color to black and white, because that can be a complex process depending on how you do it. There are several ways, we'll link to our episode on black and white photos. There are several ways you can convert a photo to black and white, but Here's another constraint, shoot in black and white. And by that, I mean, set your in-camera settings to a black and white picture when you'll see black and white in your viewfinder. And, and this is really interesting if you're not used to it because you see the world in a very, very different way. This is what I did. When I went out shooting on our experimental uh, constraint photo shoot that I did, uh, I shot with one lens. I had the, the 27 millimeter pancake lens on my, on my Fuji prime, no zoom at all. And I set one of the black and white film simulations. And despite what we just said about me feeling uncomfortable about not post-processing, it was actually fun. Like I enjoyed mostly being able to see what the result would be. That makes a huge difference. I was shooting raw plus JPEG. So I do have the color versions, but I also saved the black and white versions and it just makes such a difference in seeing the scene with your eyes and then seeing it through the viewfinder and seeing that preview, I felt like my brain went in a sideways direction in a good way because I wasn't fighting my natural impulses. Like here was something new and I had to deal specifically with this situation. Yeah. I, I really like the black and white thing because on the one hand, you do have a lot of latitude when you convert a color photo to black and white. You can alter the contrast of the various colors. You can get really, really precise, or you can just desaturate it and play with the contrast mm -hmm. and the shadows and the highlights. But when you look at it in black and white, you're already seeing, you're, you're seeing something that has 
that is an abstraction of reality, and you're seeing it in a way that you can't see it through your own eyes. When you take a color photo, you're trying to reproduce what you see through your own eyes. You may want to later alter that, oversaturate it, you know, invert the colors, add a vignette, whatever, but you're still seeing more or less what's going to be in that final photo. But when you do it in black and white, you have to understand that you're looking at something that is different than reality. And this can be very freeing. You'll, you'll see the contrast between the shades of gray in a different way that you might not even notice when you're shooting in color. And as you say, you keep the raw. If you've taken a picture and you think it'll be better in color, go back to the raw file and make it in color. But if you do start with the black and white, and if you get if you make this a habit and get used to it and do it often, then you'll be able to spot things that will look good in black and white. And this is, of course, one of the reasons why I lust after the Leica M monochrome. <laughs> because not only do you see things in black and white, but you have no choice. It is black and white. As we've talked about, and you know, perhaps I'm, I'm overstating this, my issue has always been, you know, having too much, seeing too much, seeing the bigger picture. And so uh, as a part of this, I also was very deliberately looking for small details. And, and some of that was the lens too. Like it's a perfectly fine lens for, for a wider angle, but it's not super wide. And so, you know, it forced me to get closer to things. I have a shot of a little, I'm not even sure what you would call it, like a little leaf dam in this little stream uh, on this walk that's near our house. That would be something that I would just pass over very easily. But here, especially with the black and white simulation, like I saw the rivulets of the water. It looks more carved. It looks more structural than just, oh, there's some water, there's some leaves. Using that as an example, I felt like I was sort of turning my brain inside out. Instead of here I am and I have a million possibilities to choose from, instead I need to look very close, very small, and work out from there. It's interesting that this sort of constraint of a camera and a lens in black and white led you to another type of constraint of looking for different compositions. And I think that's part of the strength of this. You no longer have this expert's mind that's trying to hone in on exactly the perfect picture. You have the beginner's mind that's open to all the possibilities and you start to look at them a little bit differently. So the next two that I have kind of go together, they're corollaries of each other and you'll laugh because the first one is shoot automatic and the second one is shoot manual. <laughs> and the reason I include both is because there are some people who always shoot automatic and some who always shoot manual. So the constraint for those people should be the opposite of what you usually do. I'm a firm believer in using as much automaticity on the camera that I have as possible. In most cases, not in all. If I'm shooting macro, I want to use aperture and shutter speed and all those things and probably a tripod and you know, it's more specific about getting something with a very limited focal plane. But in general, if I'm just walking around, I would rather everything be as automatic as possible. Before the show, Jeff and I were discussing the, the curious way that auto ISO works on Fujifilm cameras that neither of us can really figure out. <laughs> but the idea of shooting automatic means that you're just shooting a picture. You're not worrying about, you're not worrying about anything. You're worrying about the focus. Uh, and you can obviously use autofocus too. I'm a little bit more skeptical about autofocus because it depends on where your focus point is. So you can't just point and shoot in most cases. But you're in a position where 
you don't have to think about the tool. The tool is an extension of your eyes, of your hands, of your mind, and you can just drop all that. Now, on the other hand, if you are used to shooting automatic, go to manual, go to shutter priority, go to aperture priority, learn how to use different apertures, learn about depth of field, learn how to use shutter speed to make things sharper, blurrier, etc. Taking that advice, I think what you should do is hit each of those things in turn, because Honestly, for a second, it almost sounded like too many options. Play with your aperture, play with your sh shutter speed. As a practical exercise, go out and shoot everything at your camera's widest aperture. See how that's going to affect your, your background, your depth of field, your lighting. Just that, even if that's your only constraint. And then the next time, shoot only at, you know, say, a fast shutter speed and see what you have to do to compensate. Right, because we have to remember that we have this famous exposure triangle, which means that if you if you limit one of these three elements, you have to alter the other according to the light you're shooting in. Mm -hmm. This is a fantastic way, even if you don't get any usable pictures, and that's okay. This is a fantastic way to break this down so that the next time you are out shooting and you don't have the luxury of pondering, well, what should my shutter speed be at this aperture? You're going to know that better you will get to the point where you will look at a scene and you'll be like, I think this would be a really good F8 at about, you know, one two fiftieth of a second uh, with my ISO as low as I can get it, say ISO 200. And that'll be your starting place rather than just showing up and blindly fumbling for controls or hitting your automatic setting and then trying to figure out, okay, why is it blurry? Because it's, actually, you know, shooting too, too slow for me to do this handheld. Okay, another constraint you can use, and this one I have trouble with, it is shooting in different aspect ratios. Choose an aspect ratio you don't use and shoot in that aspect ratio. Now, regular listeners know that I am pretty much an aspect ratio fundamentalist, and the one true aspect ratio is three to two. <laughs> Although, I totally accept the square format, and I use it a lot with macro shots. I use it with black and white. There is a certain history of the square format in black and white. But maybe if you never shoot square, set your camera to square. You know, you can do this in camera. So the JPEG that you get is square, but your raw file is still the full frame. Uh, if you have a micro four thirds camera, switch to three two, switch to 16.9, you know, find a different aspect ratio and just walk around and use it. Now, square is good if you're like in a city a wide aspect ratio like 69 is good if you're doing landscapes. So maybe shoot landscapes in square format and city shots in 16.9. Turn things on their head to see what happens. I think what's interesting about this whole discussion so far is we're just breaking everything down. One of the problems that I think we get into is we get comfortable with the way we're shooting or we get comfortable with our cameras and... Maybe I'm going too far afield here, but all the things we've been talking about also really apply if you find yourself in a creative rut. If you've been shooting and you're like, oh, like, like nothing is appealing to me. None of these compositions are working for me. It's probably not because, oh, suddenly you are no longer a photographer. You have no talent. These are things that sometimes pop into mind. And you don't need a new camera. You don't need a new camera. <laughs> Maybe you need it. No, 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 no. You don't need a new camera. No, no, no. <laughs> and the problem likely isn't that 
you don't have anything else to say or you don't have anything that's near you that is photo worthy. The problem is that you just need to change it up, shake it up. I mean, that sounds so cliche, but I think it actually works. I have a friend who he's a photographer. Uh, his name is Duncan Davidson. And he did a talk at one point about uh, this idea of being super constrained, not in in the gear, but in time. So he would go out walking and he would set an alarm on his phone that would be like, say, every 20 minutes. And when that alarm went off, he had to stop what he was doing and take a picture right there. Didn't matter where he was, didn't matter whether he was in a photogenic place or if he was like in some absolutely uninteresting spot, he had to find a photo right there. That's an extraordinary idea. I'm going to try that one. I really like it. Yeah. It is forcing you to make a photo. It may not be a good photo, but it's like triggering that aspect of your brain that says, okay, now I'm going to take a photo and what do I have to work with? I think this is a lot like good cooks. This is something that I, I cook a lot, but I don't have that little bit of my brain that says, okay, I'm going to open the fridge and I have five ingredients that have nothing to do with each other and I'm going to make something out of it. Some people, they can be like, oh, I know 10 different things I can make with this. And so this is the same thing with, with, with photography. It's like, okay, you are in a dark alley and uh, you have you know like one shaft of sunlight and an F2 lens. Okay, go, like make something right now. It's really interesting because I'm one of those people who cooks a fair amount and can do that bit, look in the fridge oh, and come up with something. I'm so envious. But this isn't a cooking podcast, but I- <laughs> It um, is now. I actually bought some cooking gear that made a big difference. I bought some really good knives mm. um, just after Christmas. And having the good knives makes a difference in what I can prepare and how I, how I can prepare it. I've learned how to actually dice onions the right way and- deal with all that. And that means that you've got that out of the way and you can think about the creative stuff instead of worrying how long it's going to take to cut up everything and to prepare everything. See, we told you that this wasn't going to be a photo gear podcast. It's actually, absolutely, it's not. actually a cooking gear podcast. <laughs> one last constraint, and this is almost an, an easy one, except it's not that easy. Shoot with your iPhone or whatever phone you use. Keep your camera, mm. your real camera someplace else. You've got your phone with you probably all the time. Go out consciously to take pictures with your phone. And this is something I have a lot of trouble doing because for me, it's not a real camera and I have, I just can't think of it the same way. But every once in a while, I will walk around and I will say, I'm going to take pictures with the phone and see what happens. It's something I need to do or it's something I think we all need to do more because with the phone, it's fully automatic. You don't have to worry about your aperture, your ISO, your f-stop. Your focus point, okay, you can maybe adjust the luminosity a little bit when you're shooting, but everything's automatic and you can just free yourself. If only phones had viewfinders, because <laughs> I don't like taking a picture holding the phone out in front of me and looking at the, the LCD screen. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That also leads to the idea of focusing on a specific aspect of photography, taking your, your iPhone out because everything is is basically figured out for you, it's a great way to just focus on composition. That's all you're going to do is find good compositions, 
compose them on the screen, don't crop later, work on just that aspect of your photography. And then another time you can have your other camera where you'll just focus on light and shadow, for example. I'm going to wrap up with one very important aspect to all this, which is after you've gone out and done this, make sure you review what you did. Make sure you go through and see what worked, see what didn't, because it's super easy to go out, figure out what your constraints are going to be, do some shooting, learn from that. That's great. But then go and see what the results were. See how those constraints affected your photos and compare them with, say, an average day where you weren't thinking about specific constraints. Yes, look at, look at what worked and look at what didn't work. And then you'll remember that for when you're shooting without constraints. You'll be in a specific situation with certain lighting and you'll remember, ah, when I did this with this constraint, it worked really well. And it'll be an extra tool that goes into your toolkit. This all sounds like, this all sounds like schoolwork, like we're giving you homework and there's also that little part of me that kind of rebels against that. That's like, well, hey, I just want to go out and take pictures. I don't need to be given all these specific rules and stuff. But it's something that I think you'll enjoy having these constraints and putting them on yourself because you're flexing that photographer's eye, that photographer's mind that is going to lead to better photos, whether you like it or not. Okay, time for our snapshots. Jeff, what have you got this week? So iOS has this shortcuts feature. And shortcuts, it's a lot of uh, automation that gets done on your iPhone or iPad. So recently, Adobe updated Lightroom CC for iOS. And they added shortcut support just for one shortcut. And someone took this and ran with it. And they created a shortcut that gets around a common problem with importing photos on an iPad or an iPhone. The problem is, quickly, everything that you import has to go into the photos camera roll, and then Lightroom grabs it from there. So what this shortcut does is it grabs the most recent import from photos, imports those images into Lightroom, and then deletes the images from photos, makes it all automatic. It's very slick. It's free. I'll put a link in the show notes. The one thing that I've noticed recently is it's only seeming to pull JPEG versions instead of raw versions. And I haven't quite figured out why that is, but it's a really easy way to bring things in and not have to then do the manual deletion later. Kirk, do you have something this week? I do. I have a book. Uh, a few weeks ago, I got three new books in one week that were all stunning. Uh, we'll link to a, an article on my blog about them. I've picked one to talk about as a snapshot. It's called Bright Black World by Todd Heido. Todd Heido makes a number of different types of photos. Uh, he started out with these really interesting photos of suburbia with houses at night with, you know, somewhat long exposures for the streetlights and the lights inside the houses. Then he has a style of photos that he shoots through the windshield of a car. So you see the rain and you see the, the dirt on the windshield that gives it a kind of a texture. He's also done a lot of portraits, uh, particularly of sort of anonymous nude women in hotel rooms that were very interesting. And this new book, Bright Black World, is a combination of different photos, mostly landscapes. There's only one portrait in it. And it's pretty dark. There's an epigram in the beginning. It says, it's been said that Inuits have many words to describe white. 
As the polar snow caps melt faster than we ever imagined, I wonder how long it will be before we have as many words to describe darkness. Now, not all the photos are dark like that. In fact, I, I did pick one that's particularly dark to illustrate in the article on my website. I really like this photo. It's through the windshield of the car at a fork in two roads with the sun above the horizon and everything's a little bit distorted and it really is this sort of Robert Frostian thing, you know, which one do I take? Are they both terrible? Is is either of them any good? It's a pretty dark book, but some of the landscapes are very light. They're not dark as such, but when you put the whole thing together, it is a story of darkness. This is a very large book. I'm holding it up for Jeff. It's about, what, one foot by two wow. um, with some very wide format pictures. In fact, there are even a couple of pictures that fold out, one in double and another one in quadruple, kind of like those posters you used to get in magazine, like music magazines yeah. and bands and all, you know, they fold out. And unfortunately, what happens with the foldouts is the the line of the fold, the ink is gone and it's kind of whitish, so they don't really look that good. I like the idea of having these bigger photos, but they, they just don't, you know, what am I going to do, cut them out and put them on the wall? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> but it's an extraordinary book. It's a breathtaking book. It's Again, it's not the kind of photography that everyone's going to like, but this is truly a unique photographer. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. Until next week, thanks again for listening.